This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. All right, so we are rolling. All right, I'll kick it off. All right, welcome to the Monroe Live podcast. Today we have Tom Kelly, the Executive Director and CEO of Automation Alley. So Tom, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role with your organization? Hey, thanks for having me. This is great to be here. I'm a big fan of Sandy's work and, and what Monroe does. And and I know uh, Sandy's a big supporter of us at Automation Alley. So uh, your audience probably doesn't know who Automation Alley is. We were started back in 1999. I promised not to give you 23 years of history, but uh, we were started by Brooks Patterson, which was the county executive for Oakland County. And back in 99, you may recall that it was uh, uh, Michigan was sort of uh, uh, on hard times and, and people, you know, were saying that we were the Rust Belt. It was we were lumped in with uh, Michigan and Ohio and Indiana and Buffalo and uh, out to Wisconsin. And what happened was um, Brooks w- did this study. And the study showed that outside of Silicon Valley and the Boston corridor, we had more software engineers in Southeast Michigan than anywhere else. And they were all classified as auto workers. And so he went about forming this organization called Automation Alley to really change the perception that this is a very high-tech area. And uh, the economist had coined this term Automation Alley to talk about the automation that was occurring, uh, sort of doing that, uh, economists is good at uh, doing this under the radar kind of stuff. And they coined this term automation. And they said, you got to pay attention to what's happening in Michigan uh, because of the robotics and things that are happening. So we, we co-opted that term and uh, we had eight counties join us. And it was really to change the perception. Now, if you fast forward to 2016, when I came in as the executive director, we we pivoted a little bit. We were an association that was that was a cheerleading organization to really bring people together to celebrate all the technology and things that we do in Southeast Michigan. I saw in 2016 this shift that was occurring on the global stage, which really was the fourth industrial revolution. It was the digitization of everything. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, Tesla is a great example of the digitalization of the auto industry and how they've driven that just beyond EV, but into how you actually make the vehicle itself. So Automation Alley, we pivoted and said, we need to be the organization that helps our manufacturing community understand this digitization. And the reason why I felt that was so critical was that Michigan invented the second industrial revolution. The first was steam and the locomotive. The second was Henry Ford and the assembly line. The third was computers and robotics. And this fourth is the digitization of everything. Software is going to eat the world, right? That, that whole thing. And so because Michigan invented the second industrial revolution, we, we built systems to, to maximize wealth around this idea of the assembly line and the idea of this, this capital intensive way of producing things. 
the risk we have in Michigan specifically, and for all manufacturing communities, is that the fourth industrial revolution is about tearing down all of that fake uh, uh, capital that, that is required, right? The way it used to be and going with a software methodology that says, I'm going to have a software first methodology and then I'm going to be, have a capital light business. I'm going to use 3D printing where I can because I don't have to have all these machines that bend metal this way and then bend metal back that way and then add a little bolt here and then do something else. It's like, I can just print it all in one go. Or I can use sensors to, to inform what I'm doing and how to, how to get better at it. So we're seeing a fundamental shift in manufacturing that is going to go from capital intensive to capital light, and it's going to shorten the time to market. Mass customization, which when I came out of school as an, an electrical engineer back in the 80s, we talked about, oh, the world's going to be mass customization. Well, it never happened <laughs> because the cost of doing things was so expensive that you really had to understand manufacturing and you, you were divorced from design. An engineer would design something, a manufacturer would then get it and say, you don't know what you're doing. Let me, let me redesign this so we can actually make it in a, in a factory using all these machines. We're getting back to this pure form where engineers can design things or people can create things and poof, you can make it out of thin air with zero manufacturing um, uh, expertise. Let that sink in for a while. I'll repeat that. You can now be a manufacturer with zero manufacturing expertise. And this is the change that we're trying to educate the world on, and most specifically trying to educate Southeast Michigan and all of Michigan, because Michigan is, is outsized dependent on manufacturing. 20% of our GDP is derived from manufacturing. Most of the United States, it's 10% or less. So you see, we're all kind of all in on manufacturing, but we're all in on manufacturing the way we used to do it. And so we need to help our supply chain. The OEs and the big guys, they, they're kind of racing as quick as they can. And, and someone like a Tesla or a Polestar really helped them see religion of what it means to be able to yeah. be a new manufacturer. So that's what we focus on. That's Automation Alley in a nutshell. Yeah, so you mentioned the transition from industry 3.0 to 4.0. Where are we at on that timeline? Are we yeah. partway there? Are there some companies that have made the transition? You know, can you give me your vision into the future of when will the whole industry be at 4.0? Uh, what a great question. So these these revolutions, as they're called, right, the, the, the industrial revolutions, they're measured in generations, right? Now, in today's... Um, fourth industrial revolution, that timeline is going to be compressed because of our ability to use computers and, and, and how smart computers are getting. And so if you think about the fourth industrial revolution, we think of it as artificial intelligence, collaborative robotics, 3D printing, uh, using sensors to be able to, to, to get feedback on what's happening in any given process. Right? And I could go on and on, big data, being able to, to look at the world and make decisions off it and, and really improve your product. Any one of those technologies that I just mentioned is completely transformative to how you think about making things. When you marry them all together, it's an exponential on an exponential. And so we don't know how fast this is going to transition, but what I do suspect and the working theory we have at Automation Alley is this is going to go much, much, much faster 
than people are anticipating. Let me give you one specific example that is kind of manufacturing related, but not really. Let's take chat GPT. Yeah. Right. So, so open AI and, and Google and all these other AI platforms, uh, Siri and Alexa, and you can, you know, go down the list of all these AI companies. They were all working on these various methods for how you create a system that can actually provide useful answers and not just search results that you then have to do the work around. And we won't get into the, 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 the technical background of how that all works, but they're all working and they're all moving along. And then all of a sudden there's a breakthrough and chat GPT goes from unheard of in the consumer market to a hundred million users in two months. Unheard of took Google five years to get 100 million Gmail users, Google with the, with the best search engine in the world, right? This puts it in perspective of how things kind of go along and, and, and they, they bounce along the bottom in this is sort of innovation cesspool. And then something happens and bam, it comes out and changes everything. And it's not just going to be AI. We're seeing it in collaborative robotics. You know, Walmart just announced that 60% of their retail stores will be fully automated by 2025. I don't even understand what that means. I have to do more research. Say, well, what, what did they actually just announce? They said, no, no, we're not going to lose any people. We're going to be at the same employment, maybe even more. But we're going to try to automate 60% of our stores by 2025. That's the collaborative robotic effect, right? And 3D printing. If you think about how transformative that is, if you're familiar with a company called Relativity Space, so... They just blew off a rocket into space. Now, it didn't make their final orbit, but that wasn't the test. The test was it made it through max Q. Every engineer in the aerospace industry poo-pooed relativity space. And, oh, you, you know, 3D printed components can't stand up to the stresses of, of, of this rocket technology. It's, it's unheard of. And they, they proved that that rocket that goes from 30,000 components to 300 they prove that rocket could go up. It goes, it goes from 60 million to build a rocket to 12 million. It goes from two years to build a rocket to 60 days. That is going to remake the entire aerospace industry. So if some of our listeners are in the aerospace industry, they need to pay attention to what happened because it's not about you getting into the 3D printing business because if you're a cog in the wheel of this supply chain, what you do doesn't matter anymore because the entire business model was just changed. So you need to pay very close attention to not what your competitors are doing because they're all in industry 2.0 with you. You need to be paying attention to the technology companies that are saying, I don't respect the pedigree of the hundred years of manufacturing skill that you've brought to the table. In fact, that's your Achilles heel. I'm going to do something so different that you are not even able to keep up because you have no skill set to keep up. And that's the scary thing. So that's what we need to focus on is having our ecosystem pay attention so that they can keep up with this rapid transformation that is occurring. So is, is that pushing people into like contract manufacturing role then? Well, no. I think it's pushing people into understanding that their value is in their intellectual property. Their value is in their brain power. Their value is not in the, the manufacturing assets that they have because those will become less and less relevant. 
The value will be in, take relativity space as an example. The value is in every rocket they build is different from the rocket they built before. Right? They've built 52 rockets. The 52nd one went up into space. Every one was built different because they had the luxury to say, look, I 3D print them. I, I 3D print it, I learn. The next one I print differently. Typically in, in capital intensive manufacturing, you create an entire footprint to do one thing extremely well. And the first one, you know, the first car costs $2 billion and the next car costs $15,000. And then you have to build 100,000 cars to recoup that $2 billion that you did to retool the entire factory and you hope you have a four or five year run. That's all going to go away. And we're not going to be in that business anymore of making lots and lots and lots of the same thing. We're going to be in an iterative cycle. And that's where that IP comes in. I need the brain power to say, how do I continuously learn and how do I continuously reapply that learning to make it better? In fact, Sandy, I was listening to one of his podcasts um, and he said, my God, we, we tear down a Tesla in April. And we gave them ideas of how they could improve. And son of a gun, June, when we tore down that car, that improvement was in there. He said, I don't even know how they did it. Because he's, he's thinking like the auto industry, which says, once you set that line, God help you if you ever want to change it. You can't. In fact, you just, everybody tames the lions to keep the line going. You know, lions and lions. So <laughs> make sure we know the difference. But do you see how... The way Tesla's going about it, it's completely different. Yeah, and when we tore down that Model Y um, in 2020 and then another Model Y in 2022, we've carefully analyzed all the differences, particularly in the giga castings, and a lot of different changes here and there. And I think it drives people like Paul crazy because you're a body and white guy, and I think it's kind of atypical to see that much change in a short period of time, particularly because the Model 3 and the Y are similar platforms. And our, the Model 3 is nothing like the latest Model Ys. And Sandy and I got invited to the Investor Day down in Texas, and they did a tour for all the institutional investors. Sandy and I were on the tour, and they drove us in by all the, the castings that were sitting there in racks. We got out, and we're immediately looking for even further revisions, and we saw some. Wow. Uh, the cutouts and some of the issues that we saw on our, our giga casting, the front giga casting from our 2022 Model Y, they'd already made some revisions to the gates and other things that that are little stuff that we would be looking for. And uh, I think it's qu quite incredible, that iterative change that you were mentioning. And you know what's fascinating about this whole conversation is that the technology is not expensive. It's the mindset shift. And, and that's the Achilles heel of what we're doing in Detroit and what we're doing with a lot of auto industry and aerospace as well, is we can't get out of our own way. We, we say, this is the way it's always been and this is the way it shall always be. And so we need to change that mindset and say, no, we have to be, we have to live in a world of continuous chaos and we have to manage that and we have to be able to get to this iterative cycle where we can make changes continuously because that's where the world is going. And if you had looked at rockets in the past, you would have said it's impossible to have an iterative cycle where you can do a, a different rocket every time you make one because it wasn't because we couldn't envision it. It's because the systems we had built didn't allow it to happen. 
But now relativity space has proven that indeed you can do a rocket of one and you can iterate continuously. So, so we're seeing the iterations on Tesla using traditional methods like castings, right? Yeah. So they haven't taken that second step, the, the 3D printing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what they're doing is it's a combination of all of the above. So they're, they're using every means available to accelerate this pace of change. Right. And I think if they could, you know, one of the things they talk about, I think if they could get to a point where they just cast the entire frame in one go, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're desperately trying to, to do that. And everybody said, oh, it'll be impossible. Well, I'm not so sure. Right. Um, I'm not so sure that in 10 years we aren't talking about 3D printing the body in white all in one go, because that makes great sense. Right now, the, the materials uh, aren't, aren't quite there yet. But I would imagine. It's not much of a speculation to think that Tesla and perhaps GM and Ford and Toyota and everybody else are working with the BASFs of the world and the Dow's of the world and say, hey, I need this kind of powder material that we can build up because, you know, I have huge, huge casting plants. I can just as easily have huge, huge 3D printing factories that, that are just kicking out the body in white and on it goes. And that's really attractive, even though it's outrageously expensive up front. The ability to make continuous change off of that now, you know, 3D cast, maybe I coined a new term, <laughs> 3D cast model uh, is so powerful that I don't have to have the billion dollars to get to the first vehicle. I now have the ability to create massive iteration. So I have a question for you about cycle time. So there is a car that's almost 100% 3D printed. I think it's called the Sizinger. The Zinger, yeah, yeah, yeah. Divergent technology. Yeah, they're, it's they're, really they're a, a member of Automation Alley. Yeah, I think yeah, the owner is Sizinger. Yeah, yeah, it's Kevin really Zinger. yeah, really kind of crazy. Um, but the issue there is it's really expensive and cycle time can really kill you. So we we visited a company called Trump, and they have three D printing machines, but they're limited by size. Uh, the most expensive three D printer, I think they can do like several feet by several feet, and it takes hours or days. To, to finish a part with laser metal yeah. centering. Cause we looked into this uh, to helping out some of our manufacturers and then something like a giga casting shoots in milliseconds. And we, Sandy and I stood there in the plant and watched yeah. from one coming off to the next. And it was like 47 seconds. So when you're, de when you're dealing with 300,000, yeah. you got to be in the 47 second range, yeah, right. not 24 hours. So yes, you can put a yeah. hundred machines in a room, so how does that come into play, you know, uh, throughput and manufacturing methodology yeah. intertwined with Industry 4.0? Yeah, well, it, it, it's a great question. Um, and and this, is the, this is the problem that is sort of the $64,000 question. It's what do you pay attention to now that allows you to make profit today? And what do you need to pay attention to that will completely upset the apple cart in the future? Right. And I think both are valid. So right now you're saying, hey, this is the best technology to get the best cycle time today. Let me give you some examples of of how you can get caught. So um, if you look in the in, in uh, biosciences, you know, it used to be that that DNA sequencing used to take years. Right. And then it took months. And then it took days and now it took, took hours, right? So when you see, and the cost went from, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to pennies. And that 
kind of technological advance that was just so dramatic. And you, you see what's happening with AI. Today, ChatGPT still costs $100 million to train it. It's, it's only for the very wealthiest uh, uh, tech companies to be able to play in that space. Eventually, it'll cost next to nothing because that's what technology does. It drives things from very, very expensive down to nothing. Auto industry is fantastic at taking very expensive things and driving them down to cost, to be cost competitive. The, the issue that I have is we're not very good at being software first and, and true technology business. We, we define technology as that which goes into the industry 2.0 plant as we understand it. And there's these other ways of doing things that are coming that engineers in the auto industry and aerospace and defense will look at it and say, that's not viable today. Therefore, I can't focus on it because it doesn't drive my bottom line right now. And that's the risk because there are people all over the world working on technologies that can supplant this. Right now, the Defense Department is working on building a, a um, seamless hull boat. Well, you know, Right now, it's too expensive. But as we learn and as we get better, if you could kick out the boat in a huge 3D printing machine, again, everybody that's in the boat building industry, if they're not thinking about that and understanding how do I get there, that's to their detriment because someone with a lot of money will step right in and say, I can take that over. And that, and that someone will typically be a technology company that understands that cost curve reduction, that exponential curve that gets driven down, they will understand that better than traditional companies that are in manufacturing. And that's our whole message is to really pay attention to how fast the cost curve can get driven down and how fast the business model can change. So, so do, you, do you see the traditional OEMs becoming less vertically integrated and, and contracting this stuff out to the I actually IT see owners? the opposite. I actually see a future where the OEs become much more vertically integrated because it's all about quick iteration and rapid change in models and, and the things that you can do. Um, think of the Cadillac Celestique as not the halo car only for the very rich. Think of it as the tip of the iceberg of what's to come with mass customization for everybody, where you'll go in and, and the whole car may be have the ability to be customized at a price point that you can afford. That's the future, right? Just like we can do mass customized rockets now, just like we can do mass customized lots of things. We haven't been able to, to breach that with the auto industry because it's just not there yet. But pay very close attention. Right now there's, there's 300 plus 3D printed parts on the Celestique. And it's only going to go up from there, right? And, and if you see what Divergent is doing, uh, the, the Zinger, um, he's just getting started. I think, you know, you asked, somebody asked, I can't remember, wh who, how far along are we in this, in this transformation? I think we're in the first inning. I think we haven't even begun to see how all of these technologies come together because they've all been isolated. So we have artificial intelligence and we have collaborative robotics. Those two disciplines did not really interact, hardly at all. And now they're going to interact massively because the AI is going to be the brains of the robot that makes the work. And once you get to that point, in fact, it was interesting. Elon Musk said that he, is, he, is, he thinks that his 
robot technology will be the most valuable thing he ever builds. Right? And so think about it. If you take what he's saying is when you get to a system where a smart robot can do all of the work, mass customization becomes trivial and cheap. Right? And that's what he's saying, that the abundance that the world will see will will explode because of this ability uh, to, to, to drive this, this kind of future. Yeah, and we currently don't see a lot of mass customization on Tesla's products. They have very few colors. I think they had five to begin with. Now they have a few extra ones that they yeah. make in Germany. And um, you can get a long-range version with a, with a big battery pack. You can get the smaller battery pack with uh, LFP batteries. You can get an all-wheel drive or rear-wheel drive. But it's really their plant is very... Honda-like. I mean, yeah. Paul, I don't know if you've ever been in a Honda plant, but they were known for making just like gray Civics for months at a time. Um, but yeah. Tesla has really low complexity, you know, compared with a lot of the traditional OEMs where you could order 15 different trim levels and uh, off-road packages yeah. and 10 colors. So I, I would challenge that. I would say they have very low complexity. They have very low physical complexity. They have very high software complexity. Oh, yeah. Right? So they th- think of it differently. So he can change that vehicle, what's possible to change in software. He's invested a ton in that capacity. I would, I would imagine he would say, boy, I would love to be able to physically also have that same level of complexity, but I can't because he has to make economic decisions that say, I don't do my customer any service if I go bankrupt. I have to I have to limit what I can so that I can drive profit. And by the way, having complex software, that is actually a way to drive profit because if I put it all in software, the software I can constantly iterate and and my iterations are near free on the, on the scale of things, right? And especially in a manufacturing plant. So, he put all of his complexity in software. And that allows him to create these rapid iterations where he's making updates. He hates when they use the term, why did they say I'm doing a recall? I'm doing a, an overnight software update. It's that easy, right? And nothing has to come back to, to, the, to, to me to fix physically. And that was the bet he made, and it's, and it's paying off. And you're seeing now all the other automotives trying to rush into that space. And it's going to be very difficult because I don't think they're appreciating that mindset that pace that you need to really understand software and its complexity and how fast you need to move, that they still view it as, you know, the tool that's going to be in the car that might add some value here and there. Elon Musk is, the car is the software and the software is the car. And the physical is just a method to make sure it stays on the road (laughs) and keeps you protected. Yeah. Yeah, so Paul, what other questions do you have for Tom? Well, it seems from what you said, you, you, you admire Tesla and what they're doing. Yeah. Who do you think's number two? That's a great question. You're going to get me in trouble because I have Ford, Toyota, GM, Stellantis. They're all members of Automation LA. They're all on my board of directors. Pick, I mean, pick your favorite. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like your children, right? It's like my children. Uh, I think... Um, I have to say, I like what General Motors is doing. 
I see General Motors, you know, if you look at all the car companies, they all have sort of a different flavor of how they go to market. And GM's always a platform. Kind of like they're like, hey, we build the platform and then we go. And I think there might be uh, some real interesting things that they're doing around the platforms that they're building to try and put them in a position to get to that inexpensive scale, right? That, that, that that's kind of their, their big play is how can we get to innovate to, to scale? I really like what, what Stellantis is doing with their new Ram that just came out. I think that's a really fascinating truck because of the range that they're claiming to, that that truck will have. Um, I'm sure engineers would beat me up on all the, the reasons that, uh, that, that that's probably not a great thing, yeah. but, but for the consumer, they may look right past that and say, wow, you mean I can go 600 miles on a charge with this battery? Car weighs 10,000 pounds, but who cares? <laughs> you know? So it's those kinds of things. And I think, um, I think Ford is the most interesting. I, I don't know a lot about what they're trying to do, but they've, they're actually, they're the ones that separated their businesses, right? They have the Ford Blue and they have the Ford E. And it's very clear in the organization, Blue, you, you keep making money but we're going here, we're going to 4D. And so they're trying to change the culture. And you see all of these autos are trying to change their culture in different ways, but they all recognize that they have a culture problem. They don't have an engineering problem. They have a cultural problem that they need to move much faster and they need to get in an iterative cycle that is much more aggressive and much quicker. And they, they can't get their middle managers to understand that the world is changing around them. Because it's really not the people on the line, and it's not the executive suite. They both get what has to change. It's the middle managers that say, my whole career has been built around understanding this simple process and doing it extremely well. And I don't know how to step out of that box. It's just not without massive retraining for me. And this is the, this is the difficulty we have because we're living in an industry 2.0 culture. And we're asking them to now come into this industry 4.0 culture. And it is a very, very tough, tough road to hoe. And that's why Jim Farley is publicly saying to Cranes and all these, these publications, hey, we got to change our culture. He's very open about that. And, and he's getting more um, desperate is the wrong word, but he's becoming very aggressive in how he talks about his organization. And he is really trying to change it. Uh, and you can see, almost see the stress in him as he's having these conversations with reporters about how he feels he needs to change the organization very, do, very Do you quickly. see any quicker change from, from the European OEMs or, or Asia? I don't, I don't know them very well, Paul, so it's hard for, I, you know, I, I would know as less than you, I think, in terms of looking at what they're doing. Um, they don't swim in, in um, our ecosystem so much. Uh I do see that um, the, the Europeans and the Asians, a lot of them are, are settling in the southwest of the United States. And there's a little bit of an advantage in that, in that you can, you can change culture more quickly if there was no culture there to begin with. So you're not changing culture. You're only creating the vision that you want. And I think part of us losing the Ford truck factory to Kentucky and Tennessee, I think is the concept of the, of the, of the blue ocean 
that I can just go down there and as I start to build people and bring them in, I can create the kind of ecosystem that I need to be successful. So I don't know. I, I wasn't uh, you know privy to any of these conversations, but I think that's probably part of Ford's mindset that says, hey, we, you know, we need to create this new culture quickly. Yeah. So I want to go back to something you said about General Motors. So you put them at number two. They talk I about, don't know. <laughs> they, they talk about their old team. I love them all. Remember, yeah. this? I'm putting this on the record. I love them. Uh, you know, they talk about their Ultium platform quite a bit. Yeah. And the Lyric, the Hummer, the Blazer, the Equinox, the Silverado EV, they've all been touted quite a bit. But I feel like their deliveries have lagged behind some of the other OEMs. So Ford is delivering quite aggressively the Mach-E and the Lightning. And we've torn them down. We've talked about them, and we've highlighted their inefficiencies from, uh, you know, thermal system design. Yeah. And so Ford got to market first, you know, with more of a bang. Uh, GM is a little behind, in my opinion. They only delivered two Hummers in mm -hmm. the first quarter, and they they have a full backlog of orders. Yeah. So my question to you is, with the announcement of GM now considering using 4680s before the Ultium platform even hit its stride, yeah. is that a concession? Or do you think they're having second, uh, second thoughts or doubts about the pouch-style lithium-ion Ultium platform? Because they, they, they announced that with great fanfare about yeah, two right. years ago, and now they've already announced 4680s yeah. as as a possible mix. Yeah. So, you know, full disclosure, we're just uh, having fun talking because yeah. I'm an I4O guy. I'm not a, I'm not a battery guy. Well, I'm know. not a tech guy, but I love the conversation yeah. because I, I too, you know, am intrigued by how this is all playing out. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I would encourage you guys to educate me on like, well, what do you think happened? Because I think that's fascinating that, that they're going to the circular battery, you know, who knows what decisions need to be made? Because I think there's, like we talked about, that short-term economic model that says I need to get out to market with the, with a, a model that allows me to be competitive. And if I'm trying to build this new Ultium platform and it's not quite ready for prime time, it's going to cost me a fortune as I try to scale. I may have to switch over, but it doesn't mean the Ultium platform is dead. It just may need it needs more seasoning more time to have technology catch up with it because the, the platform is actually incredibly interesting the way that that they've designed it but it may be uh you know a lunar rover in an age of of you know the smaller vehicle yeah. <laughs> you're, you're building and, the you got to and we have a hummer in the building completely tore down yeah that battery report and motor report will be for sale yes shameless plug you know. Yeah, fantastic. I need yeah. to get one. Because I, yeah. I need to do my homework. But that's um, what we rely on you guys for. So it's fantastic. Yeah, so we've we've seen it. You know, it's it's decent, heavily modularized. Sorry for going back down the technical yeah, route. I, yeah. I know your space is industry 4.0, but well, I uh, like the conversation. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah, very good. So so going back to industry 4.0, yeah. with all these networked robots, computers, there's a security issue there, right? Oh, totally. How's yes. that being addressed? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, what, what's interesting that you, you just mentioned that. So we, uh, we just got awarded a grant from the Department of Energy to build a cybersecurity center at, at, in partnership with Oakland University. Uh, so I guess that's my shameless plug. <laughs> but we're, we're a nonprofit, so we, 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 uh, we're going to build this center. And that's part of the issue is um, not just at the plant level, which is, is a security issue related to 
that company. But Industry 4.0 is going to require us all to be interconnected. And what that will mean is a cybersecurity issue across all of your supply chain at all moments. And this is going to be one of those um, wicked problems, as they call them in engineering, that is going to be very difficult to solve, but must be solved nonetheless. So when you see um, how artificial intelligence and collaborative robotics is going to come together, you better make sure that, that, that there's also a, a deep security issue there. Now, what's nice is um, all industries are wrestling with this problem all at the same time. And even within automotive, you have two tracks. You have cybersecurity related to making the vehicle, and you have cybersecurity related to the, the vehicle driving itself. And this actually trumps all. And so I look, I'm hopeful, and I look for what's happening on the autonomous vehicle side to actually help drive how we handle security. Because the security on the manufacturing side is quite mundane in relation to the security of making sure the vehicle doesn't drive itself off a cliff uh, because it's been taken over. Um, not to put that thought in anybody's head, but you know, these, these are the kinds of things that would, that would be very fearful. So I think it's going to be a dual track approach and there's going to be great improvement that comes out of what's happening on the autonomous side that will probably be more adopted on the, on the manufacturing side. So, so with, the, with the 3D printing, I assume there's a huge network of smaller machines being making small parts, glued them together to make a big part, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that, that's another great uh, observation. So Automation Alley, we have a, a program called Project Diamond, and it stands for Distributed Independent Agile Manufacturing on Demand. That's the diamond. And we built this network in partnership with Oakland County. And it, we stitched together 300 small production-capable printers. These are carbon fiber printers. They can print about the size of a, of a bread box. It's smaller components. But what was interesting, we stitched them all together. And we're working to allow each manufacturer, these are all small manufacturers. Most of them are under $25 million in revenue. Very, very small manufacturers. All within Oakland County all within driving distance of each other. And we're running a grand experiment that says, can we create a distributed model that takes the capital intensive to capital light? So in other words, if I have IP, if I have a product, a design, if I can get that design securely to the other 299 friends that I have, I can make 300 components at a time with no additional cost to me. I only have... I only have the one printer. Now it becomes an economic model of how much do you get and how much do I get? But I certainly don't want to go out and buy another $30,000 printer or perhaps 10. So now I have my $300,000 capital heavy and I got to make a ton of parts. And then I have to keep that monster fed even after I'm done with that part run. So we're building a system and we've just been awarded phase two of that contract with, in partnership with the federal government in Oakland County. And we'll now be adding another 500 printers to the network. And we're slow. And these will be all different kinds of printers. And the theory is we see manufacturing going distributed. So we think manufacturing will go software first. We think it'll go additive. And that will, software and additive will lead to the third conclusion that it'll go distributed. Right? And I'll go back to the question of, I have the IP. I don't build a manufacturing facility to make that IP. I just push it out onto the network. 
and I may make it in, in Japan for the Japanese market. A great example is why do I ship tubs of resin to China to then extrude millions of Barbie dolls in different shapes and sizes and hair colors to then put on a boat to ship back all over the world to be stocked on shelves. And it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, not an ideal product because it's, it still doesn't, it's not mass customization. You get a Barbie with blonde hair or brown hair. You know, you don't, there's only so many skews of Barbies that you can choose from. I see a lot of manufacturing going the way of Build-A-Bear where like in the toy industry, why wouldn't the child go to Walmart and and actually extrude or, or build the exact Barbie that they want with the right skin tone, the right hair color, the right shape, the right uh, uh, accessories, everything that comes along with that. And it's manufactured at the point of sale. And you're going to see that really start to take off. You're seeing manufacturing food at the point of sale where these, these, 3D dessert makers are starting to pop up and they make these elaborate desserts that say, you know, happy anniversary and, and things that you couldn't do because they're all customized, right? And now they just start the machine and at the end it's like, oh, here's your dessert. And the, the chef has great creativity. So when you see this working on all these fronts, it's really going to be fun to watch. But that's what we're doing. We see manufacturing is going to move to software, then 3D printing, then distributed manufacturing. For the, you know, a, a big chunk of the market, let's call it 30, 40%. There's still going to be stamped metal, right? <laughs> I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. There's still, and maybe the auto industry will be one of the last ones that sort of crosses over because of the, the complexity and the volume and the things like that. But there's a, so much general manufacturing that is, that is uh, uh, you know, if think of it, most stuff that's made fits inside a CNC machine, right? Well, why would I, why would I smelt a huge block of aluminum, then cut it into smaller sizes, then ship it all over the world, then put it in a machine to destroy even more of it so I can end up with something that I need when I can just 3D print it right, right from the start. And it's so much more efficient, so much more efficient. Now, What's missing is the equation is it's so much more efficient for the part, but right now it's too expensive for the machine and the materials. The efficiency is clear. There's, there's no doubt, but the machine and the materials are too expensive. What we're saying to our members, we have 2,000 members now that, that swim in Automation Alley's ecosystem, is we don't know any more than you when those cost curves cross but that's your $64,000 question. That's your business model question. Every company in America needs to understand when will industry 4.0 cross on a cost perspective what I do as a manufacturer, as a retailer, as a hotelier, right? It, we've seen this early on. Early industry 4.0 was done in like the entertainment industry where Netflix came along and put Blockbuster out of business. Blockbuster saw what was coming. They couldn't change their culture to stay ahead of the business model change. They thought they, they could just, well, you know, the, that the curves will be so slow that we'll ramp down our, our brick and mortars and our, and our physical disks and, and we'll slowly ramp up our online. And they completely missed that it moves so fast in the consumer market that you are dust, that the consumer doesn't value waiting. They're just going to move. 
And that's the risk we have in all industries is that the consumer ultimately decides how, how patient they're going to be with you. And if the consumer decides that they're not willing to be paid, they're just going to move. And that's the risk that we have. And, and we see it coming all over the place. So all we're asking everybody is pay attention to what's happening and then determine when, when do I change my business model? When does it become critical? You make a lot of great points there. And even with all this AI tools, chat GPT, and there's like another hundred tools that'll oh, yeah. write presentations for you, proofread your stuff, all sorts of things. So I actually started a small task force inside of Monroe yeah. with our software team and one of our IT personnel. We're going to investigate all of the tools that are available to see if we can use them because we don't want to be left behind. We don't, we don't want to yeah. be Monroe and Associates, the company that ignored all these AI tools and gets kind of you know, behind the curve. The productivity improvement for AI is going to be off the charts. I don't even know. Uh, we got to figure out a way to measure it because, you know, give you an example. Um, I have everybody in my company using chat GPT and, and AI to help them in their days. And, and then we get together for lunch and learn. And say, how did you use it? Teach that person how to use it. How, how did you go? Uh, just a little trivial Example, I gave a speech to the Society of Information Managers a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I came back and they said, hey, we want to go to our the, to your Integrate Conference, which, by the way, our Integrate Conference is May 9th. It's here at Suburban Collection. I encourage everybody to go. It's integrateconference.com. But uh, I, I came back and I, and I said to uh, ChatGPT, write a thank you letter to the president of the Society of Information Management and extend to them a discount. Uh, for our Integrate Conference, and here's where the Integrate Conference can be found, and write him a letter that he can send to his membership, encouraging them to attend Integrate and, and all the things. It was done in 30 seconds, and I had to do maybe a minute of edit. That would have taken me a half hour to write, right? Because you'd wordsmith it. You'd, That's not right. No, I got to say it this way. That is going to be the power of ChatGPT, this ability to, you know how it's easier to edit something than to start with a white sheet of paper? It's going to eliminate the white sheet of paper. It's going to say, here's the framework. Oh, I don't like that. I hate that. Change that. Fix that. But you are going to become your own editor, and it's going to increase your productivity massively, right? We have other examples where you're seeing these companies, um, uh, our COO, Pavan Mazumdar, he, he, he asked ChatGPT to write a Python code to do something uh, regarding some, some data extraction. And it did it. And think about that. It just blows your mind what's going to be possible. So how, how do you think that AI and Industry 4.0 is going to affect the job market? I actually agree with the World Economic Forum. So we're in partnership with the World Economic Forum with our U.S. Center for Advanced Manufacturing. And that center uh, really works to solve the global problems for the very largest corporations. And they did a study a couple of years ago, and it said, uh, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the numbers in my head, but something like, you know, uh, AI is going to destroy 57 million jobs, uh, you know, globally, and it's going to create 88 million jobs in the next 10 years. So, so the types of work that will be able to, to be done, you know, I think the way to think about it is throughout all of history, Let's take the United States as an example. Everybody has been worried that robotics are going to take all the jobs and automate. Remember, we fight automation. Alley has fought this battle since our inception. Automation is dirty. It's bad. You don't want it. It's going to steal jobs. We are 
at 3.5% unemployment, and 2 million jobs are going wanting in manufacturing today because there's nobody to do them. So for all of the technology that we've put to work, we still can't have it find enough people to do the work. And the reason for that is it's at the age-old issue that says the world wants to get to abundance. And there will always be, it's, it, it's like an infinity equation. There will always be more to do. And so as you get more and more capabilities with AI, with robotics, with 3D printing, there will be more and more things to be done. And so there will always be jobs to be had. And the, and the jobs get more and more interesting and more and more, uh, um, uh, the wages go up with those jobs, right? There's, there's nobody really toiling in fields in America like we used to because it used to be one guy, one horse, one plow. And what you got done was what that horse and man could do with the, with the plow in, in one day, right? And, and on and on and on. And now there's one farmer in one tractor doing acres upon acres upon yeah. acres of farming. And the tractor drives itself. And the tractor drives itself. And he's just there to make sure the tractor doesn't do anything crazy, right? And that's, we're going to get that in all industries, but it's going to it's going to create other opportunities and more important opportunities. The reason why we, we don't do a good job of educating our kids, uh, it, it, which is probably a, a third rail I just touched, but you know, this is an issue that everybody talks about how is because the, the, the value we place on that is in com competition with the value for other jobs. And so people go off and do other jobs. And if you can start creating abundance where you can then pay more for the things that really mattered, like elder health care uh, and, and education and things that really are human-centric, I think we're coming into a golden age. I really do. Yeah. So, Tom, this has been great. And uh, I, as an Oakland County resident, I really appreciate you running Automation Alley. And I've Thank heard you. about Automation Alley for years, and now I have so much more insight into what you do and your organization. You're always welcome. And we love what Monroe yeah. is doing. We, we, we promo you guys all the time and yeah. we love what you guys are doing. And Such great work. And you said your conference is on May 9th, May 9th in a great conference. Yeah. It's on May 9th. And uh, we can put a link to that in the description yeah. of this video. So any of our viewers, if you want to check out that conference, it'll be in the description and any other contact information. Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? Yeah. The easiest place to get information is, is automationalley.com. You can find me on, uh, on LinkedIn and, you know, you're not on Twitter. <laughs> Got a blue, blue check mark. I, no? You know, I might <laughs> see when everybody zigs, you zag, right? If everybody's abandoning the blue check yeah. mark, that's the time to get one. <laughs> San, Sandy joined Twitter right after Elon bought it. Yeah. And he was put on a 90 day wait list to get a blue check mark. Cause you couldn't get it right away wow. because people were using them to spoof and stuff. Yeah. yeah. He got his blue check mark. He's got like 65,000 followers. Oh when he posts, he gets 300,000 views, yeah. 800,000. So, well, he's Sandy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not, you know, if I put a blue check mark, I'd get like eight, eight people surprised. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Twitter's where it's at. I like Twitter. Yeah. Paul, you on Twitter? You're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. I've got like three followers. I'm good. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Cool. Hey, one of them's me, I think. <laughs> Awesome. Thanks for everything, guys. I right, really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Very interesting. Thanks.